before having kids, <laughs> I worked as a project manager for a large defense contractor. I have worked on some pretty large projects, the largest of which was, was the design and construction of a Navy ship. I can tell you that it is awe-inspiring what can be accomplished when people work together. But all of that doesn't happen magically. It takes planning and coordination to keep large numbers of people progressing productively toward a common goal. Um, all large projects have some things in common. Here are some key aspects of how to manage a large project. First, planning is critical. You plan everything before you start anything. And almost all of the plans center around, they are, revolve around the requirements, what the customer actually wants. You plan to ensure that each and every requirement will be met. You plan for the schedule, you plan materials, and you plan staffing. And after you're done planning, then you start the project. And any project manager knows that it is absolutely essential to monitor performance as the work is being done. You want to make sure that you know of any issues as they come up so you can address them quickly. And finally, as each part of the project comes to an end, everything is inspected internally before you bring the customer in. You want to make sure that you're going to run into no problems with the customer accepting the finished product. So as a project manager, I found it fascinating how so many aspects of good project management were present in this week's text as the Israelites started the very large project of constructing the tabernacle. But what really stood out to me were some of the differences I saw between human-led projects and heavenly projects. So tonight, we are going to look closely at this heavenly project that the Israelites did. We're going to look at the requirements, we're going to look at the schedule, we're going to look at materials, and we're going to look at staffing. We're going to do that from the vantage point of your average run-of-the-mill Israelite. And as we do so, we are going to get some pretty good insight into our role as your average run-of-the-mill believer looking to contribute to our own heavenly assignments. So let's first look at requirements. Exodus 35.1, Moses assembled the entire Israelite community and said to them, these are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. We can think of commands as requirements. They tell us what it is that the customer wants. Has it ever occurred to you that so much of what God actually says consists of commands? If you were to look closely at the words of God as recorded in scripture, you will easily see many commands. 
And in our own personal quiet time, we often receive specific direction, commands. I see God giving specific direction, commands, as a very good thing. Let me explain to you why. It all comes down to who God is. First and foremost, God is good. He's the only one that is truly good. Everything he does is good, right, perfect. Also, God is omniscient, a very big word for all-knowing. He knows everything, past, present, and future. He sees everything revealed and everything hidden. God does not need to go off and think about something for a while. He doesn't need to sleep on it, ask some advisors. At any given moment, God knows exactly what should be done, in what order, and in what way. Also, God is self-sufficient. What that means is he needs nothing from any external source. He does not need us. And he does not need anything from us. So when we get a command from God, we can know that that command comes with no ulterior motives. It is purely for our good. And this is why I think that we should have a very different view of God's commands, his requirements, than many of us do. Because I think it's human nature to sort of shy away from God's commands. We shy away from reading them in his word, and sometimes we can shy away from asking him what he thinks in our personal quiet time. But isn't it a good thing to hear a command directly from the one being who is truly good, knows everything, and has our best interest at heart? When you are desperate for direction, you cry out to God for wisdom, don't you want a command? As a project manager who has worked on programs with clear requirements and not so clear requirements, I am always going to pick the clear requirements. I want to know if it's important, I want to know it. So back in week six, Chapter, Exodus chapters 25 through 31, God gave a lot of very specific commands for the tabernacle and the priestly garments. He gave the requirements. In heavenly projects, God is the one that gives the requirements. And as a general rule of thumb, the more detail God gives, the more careful we should be to do exactly as he says it. The details that God gave regarding the tabernacle were absolutely for the benefit of the Israelites so that they could know the requirements and they could build what God wanted them to build. But let me break something to you. God is not surprised 
that some three to 4,000 years later, we are reading all of these commands. He's not saying to himself, oh man, if only I had known. So the fact that these details are recorded in scripture two times tells us that they are also for our benefit. The book of Hebrews tells us that the earthly tabernacle was a copy and a shadow of the heavenly tabernacle. So these details, they tell us about the place that God actually currently dwells. They teach us about access to God. They teach us about the person and work of Jesus Christ, which Heather so beautifully pointed out to us in week six. These are very important things for us to know. Now, because God gave the requirements for the tabernacle, in a very real sense, he is the customer of the tabernacle. But as we continue through this week's text, we see that God is so much more than just the customer of the tabernacle. He is intimately involved in each aspect of this project, kind of like a project manager. He does a lot of the things that a project manager does, only not like a human project manager would do them. So after the requirements are very well understood, the first thing we see our project manager turn his attention to is schedule. Picking up in verse 2. For six days work is to be done, but on the seventh day you are to have a holy day, a Sabbath, a complete rest to the Lord. Right off the bat, God gives a command about Sabbath. Now, biblical days start and end at sunset. So technically, the Sabbath goes from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. This semester, we have seen Sabbath come up over and over and over again, which is why we included the Sabbath summary chart in your study guide. We wanted to give ourselves some space to actually see what God said, and then also challenge ourselves to think deeply about the significance of what it is that God said. Now, I would venture to guess that if we compared our Sabbath summary charts, we would see a lot of different things. So these are some of the things I noted. Week two. Sabbath was introduced in week two. In fact, Exodus 16 is the first place in scripture where the word Sabbath is used. So we see that God linked Sabbath to his provision of the manna. And he gave a double portion of manna on the sixth day so that the people could rest on the seventh day. My takeaway, God provides so that we can rest. Sabbath next came up in week four when we studied the Ten Commandments. Listen, the fact that it is part of the Ten Commandments, ten things God highlighted, and one of them was Sabbath, shows us that this is extremely important to God. Also, when you look at the Ten Commandments, Sabbath had the second longest explanation after idolatry. So it tells us that it's extremely important. In In the description of the Ten Commandments, God expanded Sabbath to include all labor done by anyone 
or anything. So he's really saying, hey, don't try to shortcut Sabbath by having other people do work for you. This is for everyone. This is also the first place where God linked Sabbath to his creative work at creation. It's like he says, choose to emulate me by working for six days and stopping on the seventh. Let's take a moment to picture our lives every day, Sunday through Friday. And what if at sunset on Friday for 24 hours we all just stopped? Week five. In week five, we were told some of the benefits of Sabbath. We saw that actually doing Sabbath would provide for the poor, wild animals, and the land. It was also the way that everyone would be refreshed. In week week six, after going over all of the details of what it would take to consecrate the priesthood, to make the priests holy, God said, do Sabbath, and it will be a sign to you that I'm the one that makes all of you holy. He's the one that consecrates all of us. This was also, week six, the place where we saw the penalty for profaning the Sabbath, which was the death penalty. Again, we see by the penalty assigned to it, that this is extremely important. We often see the harshest penalties assigned to the most damaging of actions, damaging to society at large. So for the nation that God established, the nation that willingly chose God's rule, the nation to which God gave a legal code, God placed Sabbath in the same category as murder, kidnapping, and idolatry. I think we're seeing that God views not Sabbathing. Is that a word? not observing Sabbath as very damaging to society. As a person who has been trying to Sabbath for a long time, very unsuccessfully, I can tell you that the single biggest obstacle to my Sabbath is the fact that our society never stops. It is very hard to stop if no one else around you is. Some of you can remember a time when pretty much nothing was open on Sundays. (laughs) It really wasn't that hard to not do anything when there were no activities planned, no stores open, nobody doing anything. It's very hard to stop when no one else is. I believe that what God is trying to show us is that a healthy society 
and a healthy individual rests. Week seven, they need to keep the Sabbath even during plowing and harvesting times. Now, this would have been their most busy time. No matter how busy you are, don't neglect Sabbath. And in this week's study, in week eight, right before they start the very important work of the tabernacle, God reminds them of Sabbath. It doesn't matter how important the work you're doing, don't neglect Sabbath. As a former project manager, I can see why God would do this. Because there is a tendency on projects to try to make the schedule as short as possible. If you're doing something important, you want to get it done as quickly as you can. But God in his goodness takes the time to say, Sabbath is not a corner you are to cut. God's schedule for the building of the tabernacle is a six-day-a-week schedule. Six days of work, one day of rest. What I found interesting about this schedule is that the Israelites were not told the ending point. Typically, in human-led projects, the completion date is what is emphasized. Not here. Instead, what is emphasized is when to work and when not to. In heavenly projects, God's schedule prioritizes Sabbath. So, how should we approach Sabbath? Well, Sabbath falls within a category of commandments called edot in Hebrew. And it's translated generally in our Bibles as testimonies. So the edot are a way to draw near to God the way that he says. We humble ourselves, we attempt to do the commands, and then God teaches us spiritual truths. And I don't mean teaches us like head knowledge. I mean teaches us like we truly know, we have experienced. So keeping Sabbath or attempting to is a testimony to ourselves And it's a testimony to others. Like with anything else, everything must start with what God actually said. Not what people say God said. And there's lots of that about Sabbath. But what did God actually say? So when God first drew my attention to Sabbath, one of the first things I did was go to BibleGateway.com and type Sabbath in the search engine. I copied and pasted every single occurrence of Sabbath into a Word document, and then I took my time looking at each one, doing kind of like we did in the Sabbath summary chart, trying to see the significance, what it's linked to. I will tell you that it's linked to many things that you would not expect. Then, after we know what God actually says about Sabbath, We all need to wrestle with what he desires for us personally. I have wrestled with many things related to Sabbath. I mean, what in the world do I do with the fact that it has the death penalty associated with it and I transgress it every single week practically? This one command causes me to be deserving of death. What exactly is work? Is this work? 
is this work? I mean, do I have to earn a paycheck for it to be work? How, what exactly, God, do you want me to do with this? How do I even step into this? Oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to do this. I can remember, in fact, I'll never forget a day where all of these things were swimming around in my brain. And God said to me, clear as day. Why do you think I'm trying to take something from you? I'm not trying to take something from you. I'm trying to give you something. You see, God knew what my problem was. He knew exactly what the issue that first needed to be addressed was. Sabbath is a gift. I have ignored Sabbath, hoping that it would just sort of go away or maybe fix itself, like I'd magically just be able to do it someday. Uh, Just to like have it all sort of well up and find myself blurting out to God, I believe you. I believe you're trying to give me something. I believe that I would be better off if I could do this, just to have him sort of cut me off and say, but you don't think you're going to get everything done. Along with the accompanying thought that maybe some of the things that I'm trying to get done really aren't that important after all. I have had God graciously show me time and time again that, I, that he can be trusted with my time that if I will align myself with his provision, the sixth day, I will be able to do all the things that really truly need to be done. I have been so completely discouraged and overwhelmed with putting Sabbath into practice in my life just to have God bring to mind how I used to not even be able to read like a chapter of the Bible. And that reframed Sabbath for me, too. Sabbath is more like a discipline that we start and we let grow. So you start wherever you are. I have wondered, God, you said you're trying to give me something. What are you trying to give me? Direction? Peace? Joy? rest for my soul? What if there's only so much of those things I can have if I refuse to Sabbath? Observing Sabbath is an opportunity for God to walk alongside us in something, to teach us, to show up in a real and personal way in our lives. And I tell you all of my crazy wrestlings because I want to encourage you. If God has been pricking your heart this semester about Sabbath, just invite him in. Just say, this is, the ma- this is what I, what can I do? How can I grow in this? And then just keep persevering. After addressing schedule, 
our heavenly project manager turns his attention to materials. Picking up in verse 4. Then Moses said to the entire Israelite community, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take up an offering among you for the Lord. Let everyone whose heart is willing bring this as the Lord's offering. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen and goat hair, ramskins dyed red and fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, and onyx with gemstones to mount on the ephod and breastpiece. Notice that only certain things were accepted. This reminds me of Cain and Abel. Both Cain and Abel brought offerings to the Lord, but only Abel's was accepted. And when, Abe, when Cain was angry, God said to him in Genesis 4, 6, and 7, Why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? We need to provide what is acceptable to God. That was true for Cain. That's true for the tabernacle. And that is true for us. How would these materials be acquired? Verse 5. Let everyone whose heart is willing bring this as the Lord's offering. I want you to see that no one was compelled to give or participate. This pattern is over and over again in Scripture. God to Adam and Eve choose to believe me and not eat from that tree. I'm not going to force you. God to Abraham, choose to leave your home and go to the place I will show you. I'm not going to force you. Israel, choose to be my people and for me to be your God. I'm not going to force you. Everybody today, choose to trust in the finished work of my son, Jesus Christ. I'm not going to force you. God has never forced anyone to choose him. Not Satan, not the angels, not the demons, not the Israelites, not us. In heavenly projects, God desires we willingly give that which is acceptable. God wants people that willingly choose to obey him. The materials were provided by people that wanted to give. After the requirements and the schedule and the materials are addressed, we get a lot of information about the staffing of this project. We see that in addition to being the customer and the project manager, God is also the human resources specialist on the project. Exodus 35, 30. Moses then said to the Israelites, Look, the Lord has appointed by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. He has filled him with God's spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every kind of craft. Verse 34. He has also given both him and Oholiab, son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. God decided who would lead the building effort. He called two men by name, and he gave them everything they would need to do the job. Who else contributed? Exodus 35, 21. 
Everyone whose heart was moved and whose spirit prompted him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its services and for the holy garments. Both men and women came, all who had willing hearts. Verse 25. Every skilled woman spun yarn with her hands and brought it, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. And all the women whose hearts were moved spun the goat hair by virtue of their skill. The leaders brought onyx and gemstones to mount on the ephod and breastpiece, as well as the spice and oil for the light, for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. This passage makes it clear that the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle, was a group effort. Men, women, skilled people, leaders, they all contributed. They gave valuable items, and they gave valuable services. Some people were called by name for certain aspects. Many we're not. But God was personally staffing the entire project, personally calling everybody by name to contribute, personally guiding them in how and what they would contribute. And how do you do that? Verse 21, everyone whose heart was moved and whose spirit prompted him. Over and over again, we see this. This is not a human-led project where your manager comes in and tells you, hey, you're going to be assigned to this, or where you do an interview. No. Hearts moved, spirits prompted. What is this saying? How were their hearts moved? What did it look like for their spirits to be prompted? This should cause us a lot of very practical questions. What has it looked like for your heart to be moved? For your spirit to be prompted? I'm definitely still learning this. I have had God say things so loudly to me that it almost seemed audible. And then I've had him whisper where I could almost miss it. I've woken up with thoughts. Uh, I've had stories or scripture pop into my mind. I've, I've had an idea come to mind that I know is not mine. Sometimes it's very clear what God is saying. And sometimes it is not. We all must learn to f what, it sound, what it looks like for God to move our hearts and prompt our spirits. And we learn that by paying attention. We learn that by trial and error. And we can learn that by asking other people who seem very spirit-led how they know that the Lord is moving their heart, prompting their spirit. Back before I had kids, uh, while I was working, I kept noticing a friend from high school's posts on social media. She seemed to post a lot. And I noticed that she lived in the same area, and I thought, maybe I should reach out to her, see if she wants to grab dinner. But it had been so long. <laughs> we had lost touch, and, uh, but she just kept 
coming to mind. And this went on for months. Finally, I just sort of was like, hey, God, like, do you want me to reach out to her? Or is she just coming to mind because she posts so much on social media? And it seemed like almost automatically God was like, well, are you feeling like you should reach out to all the other people that post so much on social media? <laughs> so finally, I did. I reached out to her. We had dinner one time. And the conversation was very spiritual in nature. I know God wanted that conversation to happen. And I'm grateful that he allowed it to happen, even though it took me so long to figure it out and actually do something about it. But that did teach me to pay a little bit more attention to those things. And now I try to respond quicker. In heavenly projects, God staffs the work by moving hearts and prompting spirits. That's the truth being communicated to us in this section of scripture. And he wants us to learn to notice these things and to grow in responding. Let's pick back up in Exodus 36, 1. Bezalel, Oholiab, and all the skilled people are to work based on everything the Lord has commanded. The Lord has given them wisdom and understanding to know how to do all the work of constructing the sanctuary. So Moses summoned Bezalel, Oholiab, and every skilled person in whose heart the Lord had placed wisdom, all whose hearts moved them, to come to the work and do it. They took from Moses' presence all the contributions that the Israelites had brought for the task of making the sanctuary. Meanwhile, the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. The work is underway. And while a project is underway, it is essential to monitor performance, to try to identify issues quickly. But I have never, in all my years as a project manager, encountered what we see next. Verse 4. Then all the artisans who were doing all the work for the sanctuary came one by one from the work they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than is needed for the construction of the work the Lord commanded to be done. After Moses gave an order, they sent a proclamation throughout the camp. Let no man or woman make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. So the people stopped. The materials were sufficient for them to do all the work. There was more than enough. I can assure you that this is not the norm. The norm is for people to come and tell you that they have run out of material, that they need more people, more staffing. But not here, not in this project, led by God with people willingly giving toward it. I think that this is giving us a picture of what heavenly work really should look like. When we are all careful to follow the Lord's promptings in our lives, we're willingly coming to him with what we have. There should be more than enough. So that means that at this church, there should be more than enough volunteers in the children's program, more than enough disciplers, more than enough small group leaders, 
more than enough, you name it, because God is a good project manager and a good human resources specialist. We have tried to emphasize this semester that our freedom comes in following God. And every week, we've sort of highlighted where we see God leading his people. This week, we see God leading his people to serve, not out of obligation, but out of a willing heart, led by his very spirit. Our goal should be to notice God's promptings, where he's leading us, and to serve where he asks us. Chapters 36 through 39 walk through each part of the project. So let's give it a quick inspection. Exodus 39, starting in verse 32. So all the work for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was finished. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. They brought the tabernacle to Moses. Verse 43. Moses inspected all the work they had accomplished. They had done just as the Lord commanded. Then Moses blessed them. Each item was built exactly to the requirements. We're told that over and over again. Based on what we were told here, any project manager would be reasonably assured that the customer is going to be pleased with the final product. From a few clues in scripture, we see that the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle took approximately seven months for the people to complete. I think it merits just to pause here to consider what we have seen with the Israelites. I mean, at the beginning of our study and for most of our study, the Israelites' behavior had been marked with so much disobedience, the worst of which was last week. Yet here, they do everything just as the Lord commanded. I find this to be a very strong indicator that the repentance we saw last week was sincere. As we wrap up, I hope you see that this week's passage gives us such a practical picture of how heavenly work is accomplished. Because I think our human tendency is to treat heavenly work sort of like we are the project manager. We try to figure out what to make for our customer, God, or maybe what we want to give him. And then we try to go off and do plans and come to him with a good final product. But that is not what we see in this week's passage. We see that God is so much more than the customer of our heavenly work. He is the project manager. He is the human resources specialist. He's the one in charge of it all. And actually, I find it a little bit freeing to know that I don't need to come up with all of these things on my own. Instead, our job is just to create the time and the space to hear from him 
and to be quick to follow him. Doing anything else, ladies, is above our pay grade. When we work this way, are led by God, doing what he has actually asked, there will be more than enough for everything that he has commissioned. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We praise you. We praise you for who you are, that you are good, that you are all-knowing, that you are self-sufficient, that all these things that we know about you continually point us to the fact that you can be trusted, that you love us, that your commands are for our good. Lord, I pray that the truths from this week's text and this entire study, Lord, would sink down deep into our souls. Father, I pray for each and every one of us that you would help us, that you would help us create the time and the space to hear from you, that you would give us willing hearts, willing to serve you however you ask. I pray, Lord, that you would help us discern your leading, that we would know and become better and better at knowing what you're asking of us and better and better at doing it, Lord. And I pray that we would do the work you have for us just as you command. Help us, Lord. We love you and we praise you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and respond in worship.